My name is Christopher Peter and welcome to the Christopher Peter Review, where you will experience original podcasts discussing salient current events with a focus on the facts, evidence, and available data of the topics and issues selected. Recently, I read an article about how San Francisco is staring down the dreaded doom loop. The home of America's Silicon Valley faces social problems like rampant homelessness and crime. Despite being home to some of the most successful brands in America, San Francisco is creeping up the list of top cities in regards to the number of homeless people. Just in case you were wondering, the top two cities in America are Los Angeles, home of Hollywood, and New York City, our financial capital. Despite the bloated salaries paid to tech workers, many of them do not reside within city limits. Housing is expensive and these workers would like to raise their families away from the growing crime that is associated with homelessness. Not a situation exclusive to San Fran, but the city is seeking to take the same path New York City took by using marketing to cover up reality. I spoke about this before, where New York started the I Love New York campaign to change how people viewed the Big Apple, which was plagued by crime, homelessness, prostitution, and other social ills. So instead of actually addressing the issues that cause the problems with homelessness, crime, and destitution, they will seek to change the narrative. Rather than acknowledge that even the highest paid people cannot afford to live within the city limits, they will try to create an optic driven by manufactured narratives. We all have heard the sentiment that we should not let the truth get in the way of a good story. The storytelling is political dishonesty in my opinion. Prior to the pandemic, I was on a tour of the city of Charlotte and the tour guide talked a great deal about uptown and what was there. Naturally, this led to someone questioning why there was no downtown on the city map provided to us. The answer was that uptown used to be downtown but they just changed the name. Essentially, the idea was to create inspiration for investment in areas and essentially gentrify the area to make it trendy and attractive to tourists. Of course, we know there are issues created by gentrification. But that is no longer the worry of the leader who gentrified the area. It is now the problem of the future leader of the community that will have to do the same a decade later. If we are just going to rename things then why not simply rename the doom loop what it really is. The Consequences of Progressive Politics The social disease of abandoned buildings, rampant homelessness, and uptick in crime do not just happen without people in power overlooking the symptoms. Or simply choosing the wrong prescription, where the politicians look like they are solving issues, when they are really just allowing these problems to institutionalize. In these cities filled with people of great means and strong capacity for wealth generation, we sometimes wonder why these become hubs of destitution. Are the wealthy just taking all the resources away or is it the consequences of poor public policy? The preferred excuse will always be income inequality because it creates hysteria that allows politicians to enact redistribution policies or market manipulation. People do not want to see poverty. It makes them uncomfortable, but in the case of these cities, they eventually become numb to it. But they want to hear or see that people in power actually took some meaningful measure to address the problem. So ideas like increasing the minimum wage or addressing wage gaps become popular because it sounds like something positive is being done. To some degree it is. People who should elevate or grow out of a minimum wage job are not incentivized to remain. They now have more income available to them without learning new skills or applying for more challenging work. In many cases, they are now compensated to the equivalent level of some entry-level professional positions, which will face increasing pressure to raise wages to not be compensated in association with professions not viewed in the same class as them. The drive to increase wages is not a bad intention but good intentions may have bad results if the processes used have negative consequences that are simply ignored and not addressed. We may not be physicists, but we understand the idea that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. In economics, every action taken by policymakers can have many different types of reaction, the expected good, anticipated drawback, 
and unintended outcomes not able to be foreseen until the policy goes into effect. It is not always easy to forecast how people will react to a particular policy action. In the case of increasing the cost of labor, the initially unanticipated but consistent reaction is that less of the labor is purchased. For many businesses, there simply is not the ability to absorb an increase in labor expense if this does not generate additional revenues or profitability. So the response will be to simply hire less labor to ensure that the budget impact is the same. We may see businesses advertise that they are hiring, but when you patronize them there are few employees available to serve the customers. We may excuse that away because we may think it is because of the pay. Yet when the pay was half the amount the staff was robust and filled. Sometimes it also is because the business cannot find employees that are willing to pay 15 an hour but only those with skill sets that they would pay considerably less. Some will argue but that is the new market price but it is not really the new price. It is the new regulated price. For those workers that receive the increase, they will have potentially greater challenges on their hands. More responsibilities or less support available to alleviate the pressure. Until the quality of service declines, which it usually does, the smaller staff will have to meet the same level of customer demand and customer expectations. We all have been to places with less staff. While we may accept the apologies for slower service, we may reconsider patronizing the place again or as frequently. That is human nature. If you do not have a positive experience, why would you subject yourself to that again? Now I know the left of center people will call for unionization, but the same principles apply there as well. There are many case studies that show unionized places reducing staff or increasing the use of technology every time the renewal of the collective bargaining agreement leads to more costs. Or at the very least altering the planned expansion of the labor force. For instance, there was one study that showed that each time the deals for longshoremen in California led to increased cost, less volume went to those impacted ports. Ports in right-to-work states increased their volume. So you can see how this good intention leads to higher unemployment because companies will simply scale back labor purchases and try to do more with less, leveraging automation and technology, where appropriate. This does not even factor in the unseen unemployment with people who need these jobs to develop work skills or simply need that income to contribute to their families are kept out of the market. These individuals sometimes choose a life of crime to meet the immediate needs of their households. Now, there are people who may not see this as a problem. Does working a minimum wage job really give you the life lessons that you will need in life? The life lessons learned during a college education, trade school, or an apprenticeship would be more valuable. I agree to a point. But there are benefits to experiencing earning a living early on in life. Working in these types of positions during your high school years will help you learn to work in high-paced environments. In fast food or retail, these are not high intellectual positions, but you learn to handle operations in high turnaround environments. When you face these situations in high intellectual positions, at least you have the experience to raise your intensity, performance, and pace, you can focus on the thought aspect. There are many people who struggle to handle high-pressure environments because they never had to experience before it was truly consequential. The flipping burgers, rude customers, or other aspects of the job fade with time. But the ability to handle chaos and pressure stays with you and hopefully what you spent your money on. So when you deprive people of these opportunities, do we think that they will just find another non-existent one? Some may find their own way. As I mentioned earlier, others will turn towards illegal means. The utopic hope is that people will simply work on building their skill set through education and hard work. Well if they cannot get the least skill position, they are probably not going to get a better position without a relative willing to put them on top of the pile. College degrees are more accessible in the United States than anywhere else in the world, but the cost is growing and you might need that low-wage job to offset the costs not covered by the deceptive award bill that you thought would pay for the full cost of attendance.
There are too many avenues in these environments to help people make the wrong decisions. Especially in environments with weaker value systems than other areas. While cities tend to be hubs for commerce, the costs progressive politicians place on businesses can make these cities cost prohibitive in the long run. It is not surprising that there are abandoned buildings, empty storefronts, and non-leasable commercial real estate. After the pandemic, people did not want to be in city environments, work in the office, and wander the cities as frequently. So less foot traffic, high costs, and high crime are all the ingredients to see the doom loop. All results of poor public policy or public policy not aligned with the environmental factors. Policymakers need to consider doing something more productive than simply launching a marketing campaign. In my Responsible Wages podcast episode, I discuss ideas to raise living wages in a manner not economically harmful. Also, cities have to stop believing the myths that criminals simply need a hug. The first step in a revival is safety and security. Cities need to enforce the law while ensuring those charged with the tasks have the proper training and procedures to be fairly accountable. People should not fear being harmed, carjacked, or face any criminal event simply because policymakers have provided an enforcement-free arena to those who wish harm on others. All policymakers should be pro-business, pro-entrepreneurs, and pro-growth. Here is why I tell people not to believe the political narrative that low taxes are bad. Many of these cities are high-tax environments and these progressives consistently talk about fair share of taxes. These are the same politicians who make tax deals to retain businesses or reward businesses they support. The narrative does not align with reality. Instead, a consistent low-tax environment with outside deals is more favorable for society. If we want cities like San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia to avoid the doom loops or elevate out of the current strife, voters need to start electing policymakers that will grow and retain businesses that can employ residents, maintain the safety and security of the communities, and enact policies that support opportunity and spur economic activity. The current approach in these cities that are becoming ecosystems of one-party rule is not working. Unfortunately, they are just rotating between political leaders with the same failing ideas and hope for something different. The Definition of Political Insanity Now let us bring in the team for a group conversation on recent current events. In this conversation, we are going to discuss how Americans should view law enforcement at the federal, state, and local levels. I firmly believe that we should support the men and women who enforce our laws and keep our communities safe and markets free of corruption. At the same time, I think we must acknowledge when those charged with enforcing the laws passed by federal and state law-making bodies are not doing so in the objective and equal manner we expect from a law-abiding society. We expect our justice system to be blind in America. I believe that Jennifer and Javier are going to help us get to an objective realistic view of law enforcement issues in society and how to ensure that this critical institution can live up to a rational standard all Americans can live with. The interesting dynamic is having both of our leading political parties create a sense of distrust in the institution of law enforcement. Following the tragic event that led to the death of George Floyd, Democrats embraced the anti-police sentiment for political gain. While Republicans pounced on the radical approach, Republicans also point out potential inconsistencies in how the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice may be going overboard against Trump. Advancing the idea that there is a clear different approach for actions done by a Republican and Democrat. One party wants Americans to believe police officers are out to kill black Americans. And another party wants you to believe that the FBI is acting with great political bias. We saw the dangers and real-life consequences of politicians overreaching with their claims against law enforcement at the state and local level. Should we be wary of the same effect at the national level? We are trained to support our institutions in America for the most part. From early on in life we are taught that police officers, teachers and doctors are heroes. 
we are taught to place certain professions on pedestals. I strongly believe that we should support the police because the job in itself requires these men and women to enforce our laws coming in contact with some of the worst people in our society or people in their worst, most unstable moment in their life. This should not be lost on the public. At the same time, we must be able to acknowledge when an institution does not live up to our expectations or its civic duty. When an institution does not operate in fair and equitable manners, therefore making it a social harm. As critical thinkers, we can acknowledge that something needs to change when there is clear and consistent evidence that accountability is lacking. That does not mean removing the institution but implementing new protocols and standards. Not embracing hysteria-driven radical calls for eliminating the service that keeps the vast majority of our communities safe. We just need to make sure the lines that cannot be crossed are not crossed. And that there is accountability or a check and balance when a member of the institution acts well beyond their role and interests of the general public. Even the most prestigious institution can become susceptible to those in power or those they hope to be in power. When the apparent quality of work is appearing diminished or standards are not consistent or followed, then there is reason to raise alarm. A system that embodies the principles of precedent needs to demonstrate that the same accusations are treated in the same consistent manner regardless of the person being accused. In our debate over law enforcement at the federal, state, or local level, the argument centers around fair and consistent treatment. At the local level, there are biases that cause black Americans to encounter police interactions even when the person has no history of crime or criminal association. At the federal level, we are seeing that there is a growing bias in how actions taken by Republicans are viewed far worse than their Democrat counterparts, whose own actions are equal or exceeding in the negative. Hard to not believe that there are politics impacting prosecutions when you have a sitting president publicly stating the intention to do everything in his power to ensure his prior opponent cannot run again and actions that are not normally charged are elevated in an unprecedented manner. And when you see graver actions not charged or overlooked because of some false need to heal the nation. I believe police and federal agents should have our support. But we are a free nation. We are not obligated to believe everything they do is on the up and up. Our job is to question areas where their actions do not align with our view of equal justice. Situational facts and evidence should determine how we view events. Not default positions of supporting law enforcement or opposing law enforcement. Let me turn it over to Javi to add his take on the issue. The justice system is supposed to be blind. Or take a blind approach to the case in regard to the notoriety of the accused party. But maybe we as a society should do the same. Maybe the media should take an objective approach toward coverage of issues where the facts, evidence, and available data have yet to be fully litigated. If a crime occurred, the person proven to commit that crime should be held accountable in a manner consistent with the precedent. I think we in theory believe in precedent. But people do not always want true justice to occur. But prefer justice to occur. Cases tend to be emotional. People cannot help to take sides based on how they feel about the accused, the accusers, or the demographics in play. We let hysteria cloud judgment where we ignore what the message that the overall available evidence tells us in favor of narratives created with a selection of convenient bits of evidence. We all know those types of people who judge situations based on their view of the individuals involved rather than the facts, evidence, and data. Do not get me wrong, reputation does influence whether one feels like one can be trusted. But attributes we assign to people should not supersede what is being done or what facts are available. 
For instance, the reason some people were not ready to acknowledge that something needed to be done to ensure that criminals saw their day in court was probably because many of the subjects had criminal backgrounds or in the midst of crimes. Easy to pass it off as they are contributing to their own outcome. Even though George Floyd was far from a saint and had many troubles, the video of his death made many question why the police would be this callous when they already had the person in control. In regards to Trump, there are many people on the right who look at what Trump is accused of and see the bias compared to other politicians who went far beyond the realm of acceptability. They hang on the unprecedented approach state and federal prosecutors are taking in elevating actions to felonies that were not even charged in the past. On the other side, people on the left do not like Trump so they could care less about justice truly being served. The left has always been more comfortable with the ends justify the means approach. The idea of preferred justice is important because in high-profile cases the general public will undoubtedly form an opinion well before any of the evidence has been presented to a trial jury or even before discovery has even been completed. The court of public opinion will largely be decided on what the media decides to report and the manner the platform reports. For instance, reading an article about the latest Trump indictment in Georgia, there was a comment by a Democrat voter relaying just a feeling of Trump exhaustion, but mainly he wanted Trump to get what he deserved. Many times how one feels about the defendant dictates what outcome they prefer to see. The actual evidence does not matter to them or is less important than their initial view of the defendant. Directly contrary to how our legal process is supposed to play out. Exactly. The process that society adjudicates justice and accountability is meant to be blind towards the reputation or notoriety of the accused. Rather it focuses on whether a crime has really been committed. Is the accused the proper party to be accountable for the crime? And what is the appropriate punishment based on statute and precedent? Again precedent matters because we are a common law system, which descends from our time as a collection of British colonies. Precedence requires the government to be consistent or behave in a predictable manner. This matters because the government should not have the ability to cherry-pick when they want to enforce laws or accuse someone of a crime. For example, let us pretend for a moment that law enforcement and prosecutors in a certain municipality do not generally charge jaywalkers for the crime of jaywalkers. Maybe they do not view it as a serious enough crime, not a serious enough risky behavior, or just simply to focus resources elsewhere. So the predictable approach is that the government will not charge if found jaywalking. Let us pretend that a person who the community does not like, maybe he or she has a certain reputation, suddenly is charged with jaywalking. And no other jaywalkers are charged afterwards. Well is it fair to charge them when the statute is not normally enforced? Why is this person charged and not others? The government should not be inconsistent solely for political purposes. This is an important check on the power of government that protects the accused. An important protection for a legal system focused on ensuring that justice is applied fairly, consistently, and blind to the notoriety of a person. The government would still be able to change precedents by enacting new guidance, statutes, or rules. For instance, if that municipality in your example experiences more fatal incidents involving jaywalking, it could announce that it will increase enforcement on jaywalking. There is usually a publication requirement for the government to ensure the public is reasonably aware of a law or regulation. So precedent can be changed, but it should not be changed solely for an individual or group of individuals. I think that is usually the issue with our legal system in America. I know there are people out there who are not fans of Trump and cannot believe that others do not see the same criminality they see. In the same sense, there are many opponents of Joe Biden who wonder why the same people wanting to see Trump incarcerated are not able to see the criminality they see. 
based on their view of the accused, the desired outcome is influenced regardless of the facts, evidence, or data. But they will claim to have considered it. When a high-profile event happens, there is a great pressure on the government to take action at times. Especially in the heat of the moment, where emotions are high and facts are still unknown or scarce. People do not like that Trump disagreed with the outcome of the 2020 election. But his supposedly unprecedented actions were not so unprecedented, based on congressional investigations involving the Democrats' own election denial. Democrats have been proven to have purchased fabricated dossiers. Ordered surveillance over political opponents. These are more criminal than anything Trump is accused of. Democrats do not like that Trump asked someone to find votes before the counting of votes were completed. Although it is common to want votes counted faster in areas that may be more favorable. That is not a partisan sentiment. During broadcasts, anchors commonly use the phrase find votes. But we are not supposed to be concerned with the use of law enforcement to impact the nomination process of an opposing party. Be concerned with Democrats manipulating primary races last year by funding certain Republican candidates. These are all more harmful to democracy than what Trump is being accused of. Trump was not morally right. He did not accept defeat. Neither did Gore or Clinton. Yet, it was only him that they wanted to criminalize. He might be a bad person in the minds of people. But being a bad person or unlikable person is not a crime. I believe we should support law enforcement, but also be willing to openly criticize when something is not handled properly. For instance, a special counsel is reportedly supposed to be one outside of the federal government. The Department of Justice appointed the person investigating the case a special counsel, which at the very least gives the hint of impropriety. I will finish this segment by saying that our law enforcement, especially local police officers, need to be more cautious when using lethal force or even firing their service weapons. In Philadelphia, police are being accused of killing an individual who they claimed attacked them after leaving his car, when their own body camera shows that the car door or car window may not even have been opened. I think the whole environment recently would lead more officers to show some restraint unless truly in a situation that calls for force. Now, let us move on to our next subject. The debate over whether one should tip or not is somewhat nonsensical yet interesting. Tipping is a more common practice in the United States than anywhere else in the world. An argument the anti-tippers use to turn people away from showing gratitude to someone who gave good service. From an economic perspective, the practice of tipping can be beneficial to both the server and customer. The server or anyone who normally receives tips can make more than expected by providing good service. The customer benefits because the server is incentivized to provide good or at the very least adequate service to receive a good tip. From a practical perspective, businesses may underpay positions using tips as the mechanism to make up shortfalls that may not be possible. Also, some customers are simply rude and do not tip at all. Generally, I usually tip but I will show my displeasure for bad service by leaving a low tip, if service is bad. But there are some people who just do not tip or believe that the person is making more than enough from other patrons on a busy night. For establishments that are moving away from tipping, some are charging customers a significant fee to make up for the difference. So customers have to pay more for them not paying their workers enough. In one article I recently read, a restaurant in Chicago is charging a flat 25% fee in place of tips. I am sure that the servers are not the real beneficiaries of that boost to their bottom line. There are many servers who like the idea of tipping because they excel at customer service and would lose out on a new system. Why should we continue to disrupt systems to favor the low performers? I understand there are some who may be decent but never have the opportunity to earn a fair income. But I believe that quality of work should matter and we should not be making the basic functions become more expensive. Rather we should be encouraging good pay for good performance. 
giving good pay without proof of performance never really works. The liberal myth of if you pay them more you get better performance is not true. If they know good performance gets them more compensation you will get both. Businesses just need to show they will live up to their end and provide proper guidelines for workers to know if they are really living up to their end. There are many patrons who like to tip because they feel like they are helping the person, not forking money to the company. I think businesses should decide which way works for them and this should not be a public policy matter. If you want to tip, you are probably going to tip either way. But let us reward good service not just showing up to work. Now let us bring the team back in for another discussion. It is that time of year again when the football season is upon us. The perfect time of the year because fans of all 32 teams feel like there is a reasonable path towards a Super Bowl or playoff appearance. Even the most unlikely team can still make a run if certain things fall their way. That is what is so great about football in the NFL. So in this segment, we are going to make our picks for this year's Super Bowl. And I will allow a second team pick as well. Let us start with Jennifer, then Javi, and I will give the correct pick afterwards. Ouch. I believe I selected the Kansas City Chiefs last year and was right. Unfortunately, the win was against our Philadelphia Eagles. I feel like there are many teams this year that have a chance at making a run at the Super Bowl. I usually do not feel that way. I do not feel like the Kansas City Chiefs will repeat, although I would not be completely surprised. I just think it is really hard to do and the probability is against them. Especially considering they lost the Super Bowl the last opportunity they had for repeat. I know the go-along to get along pick is the New York Jets because you must appease the feelings of the New York sports fans in a year where both their baseball teams are bottom dwellers. But I do not go along to get along. So the Jets can stay at home in February? Same with the Dallas Cowboys. My pick to go and win the Super Bowl will unfortunately be the San Francisco 49ers because I feel like they have the roster and a sense of urgency. My second pick will be the Philadelphia Eagles, but my hesitancy is with my feeling that the defense may not be as sharp as last year's team. The preseason games left a bit to be desired in our tackling ability. I agree that there are plenty of teams with a chance to make a Super Bowl run. Many great storylines this year. The NFL is like no other league. Everything is bigger and just more important in football than any other sport. Baseball is great and is really compelling this year. I definitely want to make that known. But there are still some teams that just never really have a chance or really want to improve their rosters. Basketball is a mess. I saw on a show that the reason why basketball is highly talked about is because of the social media activity, not the low ratings of their games. Hockey is great but it really does not get that interesting until the playoffs begin and every playoff team goes into upset alert. There are so many great division battles in play this year. The NFC East will be competitive with the winner decided probably by the health of the team or a quarterback. The AFC North looks to be a very physical and close battle. The winner will be whoever survives it. The AFC East should be compelling with the arrival of Aaron Rodgers. But I think the team that will make it to the confetti in February will be the Cincinnati Bengals. They have the quarterback once he returns to the field. Great receivers and the ability to beat the greatest quarterback in the league in Patrick Mahomes. My second pick will be our Philadelphia Eagles. But I am still waiting to see what a Sean Desai defense will eventually look like. Since there is doubt, I cannot make them the top pick. Which pains me more than Christopher's pun about our picks. The NFL has the least amount of games out of any American professional sports league. But it feels like it has the greatest journey out of any sport in the world. Through the span of 17 games, the fans of whoever wins the Super Bowl will at one point in the year have cursed at their favorite team's performance in one of those weeks. Just great ebb and flow of the season. 
To win the Super Bowl, I believe that you will have to have great team leadership, a strong defense, and innovative offense that all gel at the same time towards the end of the year. The time-honored sentiment is that the team that plays best during the end of the year will win the Super Bowl. For all the Dallas Cowboys fans, I am not sure how they can year in and year out believe the hype that is fueled by their team's leadership. I do not believe that champions call their shot early on in the preseason, so they will not be any one of my picks. My selection to win this year's Super Bowl has a star in the rising quarterback, a great pair of receivers, solid cornerbacks, and the best lines in the league. The team has the hunger to rectify a wrong. Has a city that loves them and goes to battle with them every week. My pick is the Philadelphia Eagles. I believe that the defense will gel towards the end of the season. I do not believe it will be the same journey as last year. But I think we may be able to defeat other NFC foes even if we do not win the division. My second pick is the Buffalo Bills. A lot of people are not as high on the Bills like they were last year. But there was a lot of adversity faced by the Bills. I could only imagine how much of a toll the tragic situation took on the team. I think they will be more competitive even with the early drama. Finally, let us close on my favorite area to discuss, the world of sports and entertainment. A much lighter subject area. I am not sure how many basketball games I will watch this year because I am not the biggest fan of all the drama that is associated with them. Especially now that my Sixers are once again having a disgruntled player want their way out. Drama in sports is not exclusive to American sports. In Europe, there is great drama occurring in the soccer world, as Kylian Mbappe is navigating a 2024 departure from his Paris team potentially to join Real Madrid. A year after spurning a move and remaining in Paris. Not sure how many Madrid fans are still wanting to see the move happen. Drama does make sports more exciting. But petulance does not. In soccer, players move quite a bit and teams sell players they no longer value. We see that year in and year out. A little different as there is great risk in soccer because teams are relegated to lower leagues. But players generally want to perform for these teams and only seek change when they maximize their opportunities or they are unable to unseat a starter. I do agree to the point that if a player does not have a path towards contributing towards the team that it is in both sides' interest to move on from that relationship. A team can recoup value for a player while affording the player a chance to advance their career. Many Phillies fans hold resentment for Scott Rowland for wanting out of Philly, but from his view at the time, the Phillies were not in position to win. Of course he could not really foresee that they would be shortly afterwards, but at the moment he sought a different path. I can support the idea of a player wanting to win now versus going through a rebuild that may not lead to winning. But, even in the event of wanting out due to a contract dispute, the player should have the patience for the team to find the proper compensation. I am sure many NBA teams would like to have the ability to do what the Paris Saint-Germain team did and put the player wanting to leave with the lowest level on their roster to train with. But many are forced to comply with the outrageous demands of players who eat their way out of town if that is what it takes. I do think teams should be able to discipline players who petulantly try to force the hand of their team to trade them. It is one thing to make a public demand and it is another thing to start a public relations battle. Especially against an organization that paid you lavishly. What kind of message are you sending to your next employer? Especially when it is not the first or second time this has occurred. A big thank you to all of you in the audience. Your viewership is appreciated and valued. Please follow the Christopher Peter Review on social media and continue to visit www.crcreview.com for new episodes. Thank you once again. Until next time.